Welcome to the Secret to My Success Show. Our guests will inspire, educate, and motivate our listeners who own a business or dream about being a business owner. Today's guests will share their stories and the secrets to their success. They have valuable insight with what they went through to start and grow their business. They will share the good, the bad, and the ugly. I promise it will be fun and valuable. Later in the show, former Major League Baseball player Luis Alaseo will be here talking to former celebrities and athletes about their transition from fame to being hands-on business owners. Good day, this is Alan Bornstein, Secret to My Success, and I am here with the lovely Samantha. Samantha, say hello. Hello. Nice to be on. Nice to have you. So, Samantha's been our production person. She's been amazing. And Louie is, I don't know what he's doing. I think he's playing at a baseball camp or something. He will be back next week. So in the meantime, we're going to have Samantha come hang with us. Well, I mean, it is a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Samantha, <laughs> you, you watch baseball? I mean, I have watched baseball with my stepfather. Um, he was a Mets fan being from Jersey, Newark, New Jersey. Um, you know, it's either your Yankees or Mets. I'm that- okay with him being a Mets fan. <laughs> Did you tell him that Louis used to be a first base coach for the Mets? No, I did not tell him, but I should. You should. If he's a Mets fan, Louis was a first base coach. He was there for about a year, and then I think that was it. If I even connect them, he'd probably fangirl. <laughs> <laughs> now that would be a riot. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to see that. See a 60-year-old Puerto Rican man shaking his britches to me, another <laughs> baseball player. Oh. <laughs> that would be great. So we have a wonderful guest. Once again, it's about resources and helping small business. And today, we have the esteemed Jimmy Miller. Jimmy, welcome to the show. Well, good morning there, Mr. Weinstein. Good morning. Thanks for being with us. You're very welcome. So, Jimmy, before we get into everything, let's talk about this. Where are you from? Because nobody and nobody is from Florida. (laughs) I am. Well, I'm... Pretty much a third generation West Palm Beach. No way. So, yeah, family's been here a long time. My uh, family's painting contractors. My nephew runs the company now, but we're one of five businesses that have been continuously in business in Palm Beach County for over 100 years. That's crazy. 100 years. Over 100 years at this point. You look really good for a dude that's 100. <laughs> I'm telling you. He's a sea turtle. (laughs) You look good. So 100 years. So you grew up in Florida. Things are probably monumentally different for you from being a kid. Where did you go to high school? I actually went to Meadow Park Elementary, Coniston Junior High School, and Forest Hill High School. Are those schools still open? My parents also went to Coniston, but they were uh, Palm Beach High School alumni. Wow. My high school closed. Forest Hill High School is still an option. That was an option for me in schooling as well. Yeah, Palm Beach High became Twin Lakes when busing started in the early 70s. And then now it's uh, right next to the Performing Arts School at the Kravitz Center. But a lot of things have changed since you were in high school here in Florida. It's crazy. Just development is unbelievable. Tremendous amount. You know, there wasn't much west of uh, Military Trail in those days. Right. I remember laughing when they first started uh, trying to sell lots in Wellington. Right? Who wants to be out in the farmland? An old old cattle ranch, you know. That's funny. Well, Jimmy, today you are a lawyer, correct? I have to be. I I can be, you know. I I don't like being that illegal most times. There you go. (laughs) How long have you been practicing law? Uh, I think next year it'll be 40 years here locally. Fantastic. So we and brought. I was a paralegal for the three years, two or three years before I went to law school. So I went through the second paralegal class that FAU offered after I graduated college. Really? So where'd you go to college to be a lawyer? Uh, well, I went to Ohio Northern in Ada, Ohio. I went to Stetson undergrad here in Florida for my undergraduate degree. But at that point in time, other than the rare occasion when we had that little freak snowstorm in Florida uh, back in, what was it, 73, 74, I had never seen snow. So I, And one of the attorneys that I was working with as a paralegal had graduated from there. And uh, he was able to 
to get me in and also get me a job as a teaching assistant for one of the uh, law professors there hmm. because of my experience as a paralegal when I started law school. So what area of, areas of expertise do you believe you are the expert in law? Well, in my career, I did a tremendous amount of dirt work in real estate. I've done better than 44,000 transactions. I had 27 title companies. I was the first one to do an affiliated business arrangement in title insurance in the United States. My partner was Chicago Title in that. We had to go through the federal regulations and get it approved, and, and now it's done quite commonly everywhere. And during all that time, I, because of being local, between the people that my grandparents, my parents, myself, and my children went to school with, we always did a number of estates every year. Uh, I've set up multiple business arrangements and uh, put together multiple joint venture agreements over that period of time. At one point in one year, I had one client that had moved from here up to the Panhandle, so I had offices in Destin, Florida, and we did over $500 million worth of development work in those days. Wow. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. So so if it deals with dirt, I've done quite a bit of it. If it deals with uh, death, which in some cases has dirt involved, uh, I've done quite a bit of it uh, over the years, and I've put together a number of different companies and ventures for both personally and uh, clients over the years. Well, we are going to talk today about businesses and helping people that are wanting to start their business. And we actually had a guest on here way back when we were talking about partnerships. And he said to me, partners are for dancing. And I thought that was pretty funny. Well, I think he's right in a lot of ways. I mean, and that's one of the reasons that one of the evolutions that's occurred in our state over the last couple of decades is the advent. um, You know, in the old days, you either were a sole proprietorship, you were a partnership, or you were a corporation. Now, a corporation could take one of two forms. It's not so much in the formation process, but it's in the taxation of how the revenues are going to be taxed, and that is a C corporation or regular corporation, or a subchapter S corporations, which has certain restrictions on the number of shareholders that can be involved, and they all have to be U.S. citizens. Um, but that's mainly for taxation purposes. And that was it. Okay. The problem, with, the problem that arises with a partnership, of course, is that in a partnership, uh, it's kind of like a marriage. Either partner can bind the other, whether the other knew about it or consented to it. Okay. So it can become problematic that you know your partner agrees to something that you don't know anything about, and you incur liability for it. Hmm. Didn't even think about it from so, that legal perspective. I was thinking more of that if you pick yourself a partner and you don't align with your beliefs or your work ethics that there's usually a problem that I'm doing all of it, you're doing nothing, and for some reason you think I need to split profits with you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's no different. A partnership, in a lot of ways, Alan, is a business marriage where you've basically taken that person into your world, given them your uh, ability to do anything, including borrow money and other things, sign ventures and deals, and... Uh, you have to trust them, and there has to be a level of respect between those two parties. And when the, the trust goes away, pretty much so does the business, and they both end up spending thousands of dollars on lawyers fighting over what assets and what's happened within that. I actually think it's worse than a marriage because the fact of the matter is you're starting out a business. You're probably working 12 hours a day, right? Yep. You go home to sleep eight hours. You might spend three, four hours with your spouse where you're spending all this time with your business partner, making critical decisions as to what's going to happen with this business, which I will relay as your child, it's your baby that you're trying to grow, nurture, and see some level of success. Would you agree? I would absolutely agree. Okay. So so one of the things that's evolved out of that process 
was some other opportunities for plums. Now, there is a uh, the way we first tried to deal with it in the law was the laws were rewritten to provide, you know, limited partnerships, where basically it separates the liability from the ownership. And, and that had some favor in the late 60s, early 70s. In the late 80s or 90s, what we started seeing was this thing called a, it's a blend of corporate ship structure and partnership structure, and that is a, a vehicle now called a limited liability company. And in a limited liability company, there is a separation from the the business itself and the liability to the owners of that business. But even with an but even with an LLP, aren't they both responsible for taxes equally? Depends on the nature of the taxes. Federal taxes, um, income taxes. Typically, the party that's the most responsible is the party that, if they there's two ways that a limited liability company operates. It either operates as a manager managed business in which a person that does not necessarily have an ownership interest is hired to manage the business. And if they mismanage it, they may have some responsibility for that. Unemployment, income taxes, those types of things, because that's part of their responsibility. But if you go into a bank and you show your documents in most states and you have two people listed as an LLP, in order to open that bank account, both of them have to be signers on the bank account, correct? Well, and that's the other form of, of operation that's used, Alan, because what's happened, what happens is there's also, we were talking about a manager-managed limited liability company. The other form of a limited liability company is a member-managed limited liability company. And in that case, it is very much akin to a partnership um, in that, the responsibility for taxes flow through to the owners who are the the operators of that company. Okay. And in that case, if you go in to open an account with a bank, it is going to show that and require any of those managers that are also part of the ownership to sign on those documents to be able to get that. The first thing a bank's going to do when you go in and ask is in any business, that's a corporate partnership or a limited liability company is they're going to uh, go to SunBiz and they're going to look at what's on that computer and the people on that computer need to match exactly the documentation that you're signing with the bank. And once that happens, if for some reason the IRS comes looking because maybe you didn't pay a 941 tax or a 940 or one of these taxes, one of the questions they're going to ask is who has signing authority on the bank account? And then they're looking at both those people because that's where they're going to say either one or all of them are liable for not paying the taxes. And that's correct. Okay. So I'm going to lay out a scenario. Jimmy, you and I became partners and mm-hmm. we're running a business and you're married and I'm married and I die. You've now just become partners with my wife. Exactly. Tell me all the downfalls that you know of that type of situation happening. Well, part of the problem, and I see this quite candidly all the time with professionals, Alan, and I'm talking about doctors, lawyers, dentists, uh, engineers, where you need a qualifying person that has that criteria to be able to do it, to, to operate that company. And typically... Uh, one of the disciplines that I always followed was a, a famous author by the name of Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. That was his book. Yes. And one of his primary principles in those seven principles was always begin with the end in mind. And if you do that, when you uh, evaluate what you want to accomplish in your life and and then design a plan that's going to get you there, you uh, get a lot further along than you will if you just sort of go into it because I like this business. The other read I'd suggest anybody considering doing a business 
is there is a uh, another book out there uh, which is called The Entrepreneur and Why They Fail. And that book talks about the reason that people go into business and what happens with that process, which falls right back into line with Kobe's position. You need to think out what it is you're trying to accomplish when you open a business. And so when you go into a business and you and I go into a business together, uh, you have to realize that unless there is, are some documentation put in place as to what's going to happen when either one of you, either one or any if there are more than two partners, uh, either passes away or incurs a, uh, a car wreck that leaves them disabled or they get a medical condition that prevents them from being able to contribute, how is that going to be dealt with within that business entity? And in the absence of doing that, you suddenly may find yourself in partnership with a, a person. And I don't mean this to sound sexist, but a lot of times the spouse of that person, whether it be man or woman, historically it's been women, don't have the skills or the knowledge of that business to be able to run it or assist in the cooperation, of, uh, the operation of it. But Jim, let me stop you real quick. So the problem is that I see in most small businesses, if you and I were in business and something happened to me, it's usually really difficult for you to figure out a way to buy out my spouse. Cash flow, I mean, it it becomes an issue. So what things should people put in place? And and I'm going very generic. Well, what, what typically they do is they would put a shareholder's agreement in place or an owner's agreement in place. And that owner's agreement would agree to how it was going to be, how the uh, that interest is going to be valued at the time of the, that incident, referring to all those different uh, things that could happen. And it uh, it talks about how that's going to be paid. And if you and I agree up front, Alan, I'm going to, if something happens to you, I'm going to buy your wife out. Here's how we're going to, here's the formula for how we're going to value the, the uh the business, and here is the methodology that's going to be used to pay that. And it's whatever the parties agree to. It may be that I pay a certain percent of uh, ownership revenue over a specific period of time, almost like a promissory note. It may be that we agree to avoid that, that we are going to fund a life insurance policy from the business that is going to fund that buyout. So, so again, like a life insurance or a key man life insurance for a business that would be used to buy out the partner, correct? Correct. Absolutely correct. Uh, and, and that's, you know, part of what you do in that uh, shareholders agreement. So that when the time comes that something happens to any of the partners, there is a methodology for number one, valuing the interest, and number two, funding that buyout provision. Okay. So Samantha and I walk in your office and we've decided to start a new business and we're going to be the TikTok gurus and we've got a whole business idea and a business plan. I see it. You see it? I see it for our future. Okay. Excellent. So Jimmy, you'd sit down with us and you would give us the good, the bad, and the ugly. You would put out a roadmap for us to make this thing work, given the vision at the end versus at the beginning. Is this what you do? That is something we do, and we do it frequently. Okay. Uh, so we walk into your... I give, you, I give you the questions. I may recommend an answer, but most times, you know, as a lawyer, I'm not the decision maker for you. I can tell you where the potholes in the road are going to be and give you some suggestions on how to avoid those potholes, but the ultimate decision is always the client's. Okay. You're more like guidance. Yes. And I have to be careful there because as a lawyer, I can represent the business entity, but Samantha, I, I couldn't represent your interests over Alan's or Alan's interests over yours. If I'm being hired, you may both ultimately end up having to get other attorneys that represent each of you that look at that whole agreement from solely your perspectives. Hmm. 
So Samantha and I walk in your office, and we are fighting up and down. We're not agreeing on anything. We're having this conversation with you. I say yay. She says nay. And we're going back and forth. Have you actually ever pushed somebody out of your office and said, you're going to be so much better doing something different? I actually have told them that I can't represent them. Okay. In that capacity, because you do not have a uniform, you know, vision of where you're going. You see failure down the road, and you don't want to have any part of your name on that. It's it's not just failure. I I don't you you know as an attorney you are you are basically to use an old west term I'm a hired gun, and you ride for the the person that hired your gun. Well, when I get you both coming in, fighting with each other, how do I make a decision as to which one I'm going to be the gun for? Right. You know, I'm I'm having I can't make that decision. So you're gonna you're gonna write our business prenup. I can write your yeah I can write your business plan. I can make some suggestions, but I have to do it in a you know based on what you two have come up with and answering the questions that I provided you, not trying to uh, play to the benefit of one party over the other. So, Jimmy, we're running out of time, but I want you to tell me, what advice would you give to somebody, good, bad, or ugly, about starting out as a business with a partnership? I would suggest that they do not use a partnership. Use a limited liability company where you are able to shield a lot, a lot, if not the majority of the liability of the company from the ownership. You separate those two things out. That's the purpose of it. It's become over the last decade or so, the uh, primary form you're seeing used in the, in the states themselves. Because you can get the tax benefits of a sub-S corporation and the taxation uh, under the IRS rules uh, directly to the ownership without having to comply with the sub-S corporate rules that the IRS has put in place. Okay. Jimmy, you've got a lot of valuable information. And if anybody wants to talk to you about their situation, starting their business, get a little guidance, how would they reach you? They can reach me at my office number, which is 561-762-4492. Or they can contact me uh, on my email address, which is the letter J Miller at Miller Legal. And then the initials PL, Paul Larry, dot com. So how would the Miller, first, I'm sorry, how would the first meeting go? The first meeting is just going to be, I've got to figure out what you're going to do. You know, you, you, you can't play doctor and try and diagnose a patient without seeing them and talking to them. It could be either uh, an in-person meeting or it could be a uh, meeting set up over one of the uh, electronic networks. Okay. And once again, your email that I cut you off so rudely. <laughs> No, you're fine. It's uh, the letter J, Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R, at Miller Legal, L-E-G-A-L, and then the initials PL.com. Jimmy, I've known you a long time, and the one thing I can say is that you take a very practical approach to doing this, not something that is never going to work for somebody, but you look at things differently than most to make sure that it's put in place for the parties that best suits that arrangement, and I think it's amazing what you've done. Yeah, we, we try and do our best for everybody, you know. The, a lawyer's worth is only based on the value he can provide to his clients. I agree. This is an investment into your business, and somebody tells you they want to pay 12 bucks to do this, <laughs> they're going to get $12 worth of legal, which is a problem. They can pay it now, or they're going to pay a lot more later when they start fighting over what they didn't do in the beginning. I agree. Mr. Jimmy Miller, thanks for being with us. You're a good man. Appreciate your incredible advice and information. You're welcome, Alan. Have a nice day. You too, Samantha. You too. Thank you so much. When it comes to health coverage, you want solid value from a trustworthy company you can rely on. Florida Blue offers Medicare Advantage plans that can help you get more out of your health coverage. And don't you want more? 
Call Apple Insurance, your local agency for Florida Blue at 888-MY-BLUE-8 to have all your Medicare questions answered and learn about different options. Don't settle for less than the value and stability Florida Blue has delivered throughout the state of Florida to Medicare beneficiaries for more than 25 years. Value, security, knowledge, and trust. Blue Medicare from Florida Blue means more. Call Apple Insurance at 888-MY-BLUE-8 today to speak to a licensed agent about your Medicare Advantage options. That's 888-MY-BLUE-8. Apple Insurance and Florida Blue. Call 888-MY-BLUE-8 today. Florida Blue is an independent license of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. It's hard enough to find a job these days, but it's even harder when you don't know what your references are saying about you. Maybe you've spent a lot of time working on your resume, cover letter, going from interview to interview, and finding you've never received any offers. If you're running across any of these issues, then reach out to Check My References today. Check My References is the most comprehensive reference checking service for over 20 years, and they do it for less. Check My References services are trusted by lawyers and their reports are even used in court. Find out what employers are saying about you. Visit CheckMyReferences.com today. That's CheckMyReferences.com or call 877-593-3633. Control your narrative with Check My References. Good day. This is Alan Bornstein, Secret to My Success, and I'm here with the fill-in, our production persona, incredible woman, Samantha. Hello. Thank you for having me. Samantha, thank you for being here and talking today. Well, where else would I be, technically? But usually you're at the board, <laughs> and you're not saying much, and you're throwing notes at Louie and I saying, shut up, do something different. You're kind of guiding us. So today, you get to verbalize that. Hey, I mean, I'm still, you know, I, I see, but I let you guys do your thing. Well, that's very kind of you. Of course. I'm not going to emasculate you on your own show, Alan. Well, thank you very much. I greatly appreciate that. Why, of course. You're awesome. So let's talk about awesome. We have an awesome guest today. We have Eva Lise. I'm going to put your your other name, Linares Thomas, correct? <laughs> Almost. Eva Lise says Linares Thomas. Yes. Oh, and said, it's unfair because I have I can say it with an accent. Right? Oh, so, slow it yeah. down and say it one more time. <laughs> Eva Lise Linares Thomas. Wow. Linares. So for this show, I'm just going to call you Eve to get it out of the way, okay? <laughs> What do you think of that? Um, I'm here to make life easier for you, Alan, so go ahead. It's all good. That is so awesome. I love hearing that. (laughs) And you are the CEO of HR and Beyond, correct? That is correct. Excellent. HR and Beyond. So let's talk about where are you from? I am originally from Bronx, New York. Oh, no. Does that make you a Yankee fan? It does, of course. Uh, I live like seven blocks away from there. You know what they say? If you're not from the Bronx and you're rooting for the Yankees, it's like going to the casino and cheering on the dealer. (laughs) Okay? Yeah, I can see that. Absolutely. You're entitled to be a Yankees fan from the Bronx. But if you're anywhere outside the Bronx, I I actually think you should be a Mets fan. I agree. I'm I'm team Mets, but we'll forgive you. (laughs) just for today thank you i appreciate it you know i always say go yankees just go (laughs) (laughs) that are even better i love the yankees it's yankee fans that disturb me that's a fair one it's a fair one yeah so here we are beating up our guests first thing we're doing i can understand though i can understand where you're coming from though i can't she gets the pass though so i'm a diehard red Sox fan you know (laughs) So, oh, goodness. That's a real problem, but okay. So let me ask you a question, because we do have a little baseball flavor, flavor with Louie here. Have you ever seen the movie 61? Yes. Okay, good. Because if you hadn't seen the movie 61, I'm going to say you're really not a <laughs> Yankee baseball fan. Of course. That's fair. That's fair. But yes, I have. But you've got to admit that the fans in that movie really were not nice. No, they're not. You know, they were just so bad. Yes, yes. yes. What a great movie, though. Well, you know, it's that Yankee fans have, 
a certain arrogance about them. I, I can acknowledge that for sure. Okay. So you left the Bronx when? Um, so I lived half my life in the Bronx, half my life uh, in Florida. We moved here um, middle school, and then I went to college and law school here and moved back to New York for 10 years, and then moved back to Florida in about 2010. Okay. So you've been here for 12 years. Yep. And you actually are a lawyer. I am. I am. That's why I moved back to New York to practice labor and employment law. Okay, so you're in New York practicing labor and attorney law, and in New York it's got to be a crazy place to be doing it, correct? It is 100%, yes. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on in there. 100%, yes, and especially on the labor side. um, You know, Florida's a right-to-work state, so you don't deal with unions here, but New York is very labor-friendly, so you're dealing with unions and strikes and the big blow up rat in front of hotels for employees striking. So it was interesting to say the least, never a dull moment. Okay. So what got you to Florida? Uh, my family was here. Um, and I was visiting here frequently and I realized when I was noticing the difference in the aesthetics between palm trees and green grass and cement buildings that it was time for me to go. You know, it's, it's funny you say that. So I moved down here in 98, and I said, ooh, palm trees. No, it's, ugh, palm trees. <laughs> I love palm trees still. <laughs> I can't. I never realized how how pretty Connecticut was until I actually left. I'll give you that. You get changing of seasons, but Florida, you never have to deal with snow. So you guys. Wait, 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 wait. 100%, yeah. We have two seasons here in Florida, hot and hotter. <laughs> Okay. Accurate. That's it. I mean, when I first moved on, winter was actually pretty cool. I mean, you got some good days that were 45, 50 degrees. It seems like we just don't get that anymore. Yeah, the other no. gentleman earlier said he got to see snow in 73. I never got to experience it, so. I don't want to call him out, but I heard it was 79 that we got snow. Oh, okay. Yeah. See, Alan's fact-checking people out here. Just watch out, Ivelisse. <laughs> right. But we'll I do will. it. But we'll do it after you leave, not before or during. Okay. <laughs> So, yes. And it's funny. Could you imagine snow down here? These people can barely drive in rain. Oh, my gosh. You know? I don't disagree. I don't disagree with that. Craziness. (laughs) Crazy. So, you moved down to Florida. Did you take a job uh, doing HR? What did you do? Yeah. So, when I was relocating, I decided that I didn't want to necessarily litigate anymore. Um, I wanted to be more... Um, proactive, preventative, and be engaged in preventing litigation rather than dealing with litigation. So I knew that that was dealing on the HR side. So um, I started looking for executive HR roles, and um, I became executive of labor and employment relations um, for a large corporation, where I ultimately became head of human resources and compliance. Okay. And then you jumped off the boat. That's right. Four years ago, four and a half years ago, I did it. So four and a half years ago, you jump off the boat, COVID comes, and you're saying, oh, no, what did I do? <laughs> what did I do? There's no life raft. I'm swimming from the middle of the ocean, right? Uh, that is for sure. It was certainly a shock. It happened, yep, year two of having started my business. And interestingly enough, it also happened uh, two weeks after the contract with my largest client had come to an end. So it was very interesting timing, to say the least. Wow. But you made it. You came out on the other side. I made it. Yes, I did. Thankfully, I did. I did. (laughs) COVID actually, not that it's a positive thing, but the changes from the pandemic actually helped my business because my business model, a lot of it has to do with providing virtual HR support. Which prior to COVID, you know, some businesses may have been hesitant, right, of not having a person sitting there. Um, But the pandemic and and this whole idea of remote work and communicating remotely, um, you know, allowed people to have buy-in and understand the business and how we could be of value. So it it actually helped Um, once I gained my footing after those first few weeks of what am I going to do. I own a payroll company as my primary business, but I love doing this radio show. And when COVID hit, I was like, what am I going to do? What are we going to do? And 
I went to bed one night and I woke up and just said, we're going to be fine. We're going to be really okay. And the first thing we did was we said to any company, if you're cutting your payroll, that's okay. We're going to cut your fees in half and let's help you out and make sure you make it. And then we helped everybody with PPP money and we brought them to banks if their bank wouldn't get them their money. And then we've been helping with ERC, trying to get clients and businesses this money. So I agree. The pandemic was just really hard. But once I got my head around it and said, look, let's figure out how to help people. Let's not worry about us. And I told my staff, just stay. I'm not going to lay anybody off. We're going to make it through it. And we are going to help. So I can understand how you were able to adjust and make it work for you outside of this pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. And what you talked about, you know, the the businesses that that made those choices are the ones that fared well once we were getting to the other side of the pandemic. Because what you found were there were a lot of business that didn't treat their employees right once the pandemic hit and didn't care about what would happen and started making very rash, um, what they considered to be business decisions. And then when the world opened up again and they didn't have employees, their employees didn't want to come back and work for them, right? Because they weren't treated well. Right. Um, so, yeah, that was definitely the right thing to do. And I think businesses that approached it in that way of solving a problem while at the same time helping people, I think those are the businesses that did well. I would definitely agree. So let's talk about HR and how it relates to businesses. And I think a lot of people don't understand or a lot of people try to assume the wrong role. And I'll give you the example that when you're a big company, there's all these things that you have to put in place. When you're a smaller company, a lot of those things that you might put in place might hinder you and not help you. And my example would be, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'll tell any small business, you know, five, 10 employees, you got an active owner involved in the business, that sometimes a handbook for very small businesses becomes a problem because it's usually the handbooks used against the owner because they didn't follow it, not the employees. Yeah, often what you'll find um, is that if you have, the key to that is I think that a small business would not know how to um, draft or gather the appropriate type of handbook that they would need, right? Because what happens is they'll grab one template from the internet or from wherever. Isn't that what everybody does? Yes, and they shouldn't. (laughs) We had a post on our social media this uh, last week of stop doing HR by Google because that's what so many businesses do, and it's just not that simple. But but that's what they'll have. They'll do right. You'll have a small business owner. They'll just get a template that has all the soups to nuts in there. One, which they it doesn't need to apply to them, and secondly, just like you said, they're not going to follow it. Right. Um, so for those types of businesses, I think all they need to do is. Make sure they're covering what's important, right? Which, like, are your key policies. Like, make sure you're uh, saying, you know, have a sexual harassment policy, a non-discrimination policy, those types of things that will get you in trouble if you don't have it, if something um, occurs and you have some sort of litigation. But you don't have to have a 50-page handbook um, when you're a small business, right? And that's what one of those templates will get you. Right. Yeah, I've seen it all the time. People are sending me something. They're like, hey, can you look? I'm like, you got to be kidding me. (laughs) <laughs> you should rip that up, burn it, have a little party, and just be nice to your employees and manage it as a professional. You know, you're going to laugh, but I had this one guy. I mean, I really liked him, and he told me that he owned a restaurant, and he went to a PEL. I said, why would you do that? Restaurants do not mm-hmm. have any business being at a PEL. And mm-hmm. he says, well, they convinced me that if I sexually harass my employees, that the employees <laughs> work for the PEO, and I'm not liable. And I almost fell out of my chair laughing. I'm like, dude, oh my first of all, one, you're co-employed. You're completely liable. They made you put an EPLI right. policy in place. You're so responsible. But I have a better idea. How about we pull you out of the PEO? We'll put you on a regular payroll program. I'll save you enough money that you can get dates on the side. And will you leave your employees alone? I don't yes. want you dating or doing anything with any of your employees <laughs> ever again. The poor employees. Right. Right. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, people, they get sold all this stuff that, oh, I'm protected. I'm like, no, you're not. 
No, they you... are absolutely not. And I'm sure they were charged a pretty penny for that because PEOs are so expensive. Oh, yeah. We took his payroll from five grand a month on a 500. It's like, dude, what are you thinking? Absolutely. At $4,500 extra a month, I'm sure you can find some stuff on the side that's not going to involve your employees. No. Absolutely. Exactly. Yep. And most cases, what the PEO will do when it comes to HR issues is they won't get involved directly. They'll send you a template. They'll say, here, use this letter. Just uh, personalize it. Right. Um, But they're not going to sit there and give the guidance that the business needs in order to um, address situations or even get on the phone with an employee to address the situation. And which is actually a good segue because that's exactly what we do, right? From an HR perspective, when we're supporting a business, we are the extension of that business from an HR perspective. So, you know, we will guide them, speak with the managers. We will sit in on disciplinary conversations. You mean like a human being, a human being and not a Google search? Could you imagine that? Yes, absolutely. Okay. An actual human being that you could see virtually via Zoom or Teams, whatever the preference is. Um, and we literally will sit in and guide and, and direct and assist however it is that the business needs. Okay, so we're going to switch this and we're going to get back into what you offer. But Evelisis, you and I are robbing a bank, okay? And we design a contract that says because you're driving – and I'm going in with a gun that we're going to split it 50-50. And then I decide, no, 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 no. You only drove. I'm only going to give you 30% of it. And then we decide that we're going to go to court and we're going to litigate this. It's actually pretty funny because you can't litigate a contract that's illegal. That's right. So where am I going with this? How many times do I hear of a company telling me that all of my employees, which is an oxymoron, they're not employees, but they're independent contractors? Oh, goodness. Okay, but we have an agreement. They signed an agreement that says, oh, no, 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 I'm really an independent contractor. But you guide their work. You pay them by the hour. They have no ability to win or lose in the whole thing. You take care of everything you've trained them. Can you tell me how many businesses you know of that actually make the mistake of paying people as independent contractors instead of employees? Oh, my gosh, Alan. That is probably, number one, the biggest misunderstood concept and the most common thing that you will see, um, especially in South Florida. I don't know who came up with this idea that um, I've heard the craziest things of what makes someone an independent contractor, and I don't know where it came from. Um, But the biggest thing is this misconception that they're saving money. They're not. And, you know, you're a payroll company. You can answer this. You know that the di- the difference between paying the payroll taxes on a person and what you would pay an independent contractor is minuscule, number one. 7.65%. Exactly. <laughs> you know? but and more- you're risking that, right, for fines and penalties that can happen when you're found out that these people weren't independent contractors. And what's more and important now? Every one of those companies that did that got screwed out of PPP money and ERC 100%. money. 100%. They lost hundreds 100%. of thousands of dollars because they were paying independent contractors instead of employees on a 941. 100%. And the businesses were the ones that lost because you know that the independent contractors were still able to apply for unemployment once they did all of those changes, which normally they would not have. The oh, businesses right. were the only ones that weren't able to recoup any of that money. So for those independent contractors, so absolutely they lost. Okay. And the most the most common thing out here from a small business is they'll say, well, like you know, I'm a small business. How how, how is anybody going to find out? No one cares about me, and that they're doing it. And what they don't understand, it's not that anyone's looking for you. Is that it only takes one disgruntled employee, right? That you say you no longer want their services, or for whatever reason they're disgruntled, or you you, you just terminate the relationship and they go and they file for unemployment or, or they go and or, they go to the department of labor and say that they haven't been paid correctly or it takes one guy to fall off a ladder and have no workers comp and no insurance Absolutely. he's like what are you talking about i'm an employee call that guy your partner because he's going to own you 100 percent. and what they don't understand is once you get in the line of sight of any of these third-party government agencies it's fair game they start looking into everything and then that's when they discover that, wait a minute, you've been using independent contractors, but they're really employees. You haven't paid payroll taxes. 
you now we're going to have all of these assessments. We're going to go back whatever three years, and you're going to have to pay those payroll taxes. And now we're going to look at everybody you've done that with. Right. So that seven, what you just said, seven point what six five seven point six five percent. Yeah. That you think you saved can cost you tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on how many of these quote unquote independent contractors you use. Yep, I agree. So the next issue that I have is I love when people tell me, yeah, we just don't pay overtime. <laughs> I'm laughing. I'm like, really? You don't? Because that's the big ambulance that lawyers can chase. Because if I find one employee that hasn't been paid an hour of overtime, I don't get to write the one hour of overtime check. I get my legal fees, which could be five, $6,000, correct? That's right. That's right. And on top of that, you can be your, your, your damages could be just even beyond what you didn't pay. They could be double or triple damages depending on whether they feel like you did it purposefully, right? So often what, what happens is a business ends up having to settle, right? But it's still going to be a large sum because they're going to take into consideration all of what you haven't been paid. And there's the biggest misconception with overtime is like, oh, no, I give them comp time. No, you can't give an employee, quote unquote, comp time um, in replacement of overtime. Every employee that works over 40 hours needs to get paid time and a half, period. There's no way around it. It's funny, and I, I have some creative clients that will tell me, well, I pay biweekly. I'm like, well, if the guy worked 20 hours one week and 55 hours the next week, you have to pay 15 hours of overtime. It doesn't, That's right. It doesn't just compile the two weeks. It's for a, 40, you know, for a week period. That person works over 40 hours, you're paying overtime. That's it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. So I'd like you to tell me about a customer that you brought on and you had to fire them because they just would not follow what you're telling them. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, that's one of the valuable, I think, um, things of having your own business, right? Uh, Which I find is that you can choose who you work with, right? Especially as as you're established. Correct. Um, and you have a client base, you can choose who you work with. And I've gotten to the point where I certainly choose um, what businesses we work with. Um, I remember there was one client, they were a restaurant. Um, and immediately after we did onboarding, I knew it was not going to work because part of what we do when we onboard a client is we conduct an HR audit. And in that audit, we identify what are the workplace practices that create risk for the company, right, that are not compliant. And the result of the audit was, again, we had overtime issues. They weren't paying the employees overtime, right? Employees weren't getting visibility into the hours that they worked, which was how they were getting away with not paying overtime um, because they didn't have, like, a payroll company, right? Everything was manual, um, recommended for them to get a, a payroll in HR yeah, so that they could be visibility and, and, and compliance. They didn't want that because, again, they didn't want to be transparent about what they were doing. Um, employees were classified incorrectly. So, for instance, like back-of-the-house staff, they had them classified um, as uh, salaried when they, those employees did not meet the requirements to be salaried, which means they should have been paid overtime, and they weren't. And when I saw that and we had our first conversation about how to mitigate those things, it was complete pushback. They didn't want to do it. And they said, no, we only hired you to do X. Um, and that for me was a clear sign. It was not going to be a continued relationship. And I terminated the relationship after the second week. Were they because... Yankee fans? <laughs> no, <I'm okay. laughs> Uh, no, actually, I think they were Red Sox fans. Oh, I didn't want to hear that. <laughs> so we're actually going to run out of time right now, but I've got to say this. I believe that HR is a really good foundation if you are building a business and your intent is to hire employees. So having that strong foundation is super important. It's a lot easier to do it from the beginning than it is to make those changes afterwards. Like if you had gone to that restaurant when they first started as opposed yeah. to trying to make all those changes, it would have been a little bit easier for them to buy in. Yep, absolutely. I so, agree with you. And less costly, right? right? Less costly. Absolutely. So would you and sit down of, with a new would you sit down with a new business that's getting started out and 
work with them and try and figure out how to help them grow so that you could grow with them and help them grow? Absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, the meeting I have today is it's one of my clients. They're a hospitality group. And when I started with them, they had two restaurants and now they've grown to five restaurants and two venues. Um, And they see us again as a pivotal extension of that team because we help them start out with the right infrastructure and foundation and we've grown with them and they've seen the value. So, you know, a lot of people think, oh, it's, it's expensive. I'm going to have to hire, a, you know, $60,000 a year person to do this. And it's not. That's why our service exists. We provide cost-effective solutions for small businesses. It's a whole lot more expensive on the other end if they don't have this stuff in place. So how can somebody reach Absolutely. you to talk about their individual situation and their business? Absolutely. So um, our managed process is through uh, actually thehrhotline.com, www.thhrhotline.com. And on that site, you can actually download an audit list um, for your own business. You can also request a consultation for free um, with someone from my team. Um, Or you can email us at info at thhrhotline.com. Well, we can't thank you enough for being here. That 30 minutes flew. You were just so full of information and knowledge. Yes. Thank you. This was fun. I really enjoyed it. Well, we enjoyed having you. And for anybody who's got questions and thinking about starting a business or has a business, I can't recommend this woman enough for you to understand that she is going to be your insurance plan to make sure that what you're doing is correct and protect you and your business from things that you don't even see coming. Appreciate it, Alan. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Secret to My Success on Legends 100.3. When it comes to health coverage, you want solid value from a trustworthy company you can rely on. Florida Blue offers Medicare Advantage plans that can help you get more out of your health coverage. And don't you want more? Call Apple Insurance, your local agency for Florida Blue, at 888-MY-BLUE-8 to have all your Medicare questions answered and learn about different options. Don't settle for less than the value and stability Florida Blue has delivered throughout the state of Florida to Medicare beneficiaries for more than 25 years. Value, security, knowledge, and trust. Blue Medicare from Florida Blue means more. Call Apple Insurance at 888-MY-BLUE-8 today to speak to a licensed agent about your Medicare Advantage options. That's 888-MY-BLUE-8. Apple Insurance and Florida Blue. Call 888-MY-BLUE-8 today. Florida Blue is an independent license of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association.